Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Alice, and I'm one of the members of this church family. And we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible, your tablet, your notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you engage most with today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. People want to know the future. To have an idea of what lies ahead. And we're creative in the ways that we go about acquiring that information. I read an article just this week entitled 30 Ways to Tell the Future. Among which uh, you might recognize, maybe not their official titles, but how they go about it, you might recognize some of these. There was a, on that list, there was uh, Lacanomancy which is telling the future by watching water in a basin and how it moves. You might know the second one a little bit better. It's called chiromancy. It's the reading of palms and hands. There was cartomancy, using playing cards, and pyromancy, studying fire, and xylomancy, examining pieces of wood that have fallen from trees and been arranged by people to peek beyond the horizon of tomorrow. There are lots of ways that people try to get just a sneak peek. They don't necessarily need to see all of it. They just want to know a little bit of what comes next. And if that list and those things sound at all niche to you, a little bit odd, it might be interesting for you to hear that this year, in 2023, the future-telling business is projected to be a $2.3 billion industry in the United States alone. This is not niche at all. Fortune magazine reported that today, young people are almost as likely to consult fortune tellers as financial experts. This is not niche. And those of us who know the Bible also know that it's not new. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God speaking to Moses, to his people through Moses, told them, do not turn to mediums and spiritists I am the Lord your God. In other words, look to me. Don't look to these other means. We know that they strayed from time to time, including their first king, King Saul, who when he called out to God and God was slow to answer and didn't give him the response he wanted, he instead turned to a medium and was punished for it. When you cross the bridge into the New Testament, we find Paul and Luke, they're ministering in Philippi when a slave girl having a spirit of divination met them who is bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So you want to know the future. It's not niche, and it is not new. People want to know what's ahead. And while there are clearly many ways the world tries to go about that, as Christians, we have the privilege of going to the one who's already there. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was, and who what? Is to come. And as Christians, isn't that the best part about the future? That he's coming again, that Jesus is coming, to get, uh, coming again for us? In a way, we even today, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the disciples in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus has raised from the dead, spent time with them, and then ascends back to the Father, they look up and they're staring into the clouds when angels come and say, what are you doing? Get to work. Don't you know that this Jesus is going to return to you in the same way? And so they wait for him, and we stand shoulder to shoulder with them today, and likewise, wait for his 
return, because that's ultimately what the future holds, the glorious return of Jesus. And the book of Revelation, that which we are going to study over the next couple of months, is God's account of that future return, the events leading up to it, the glory of it, and the beauty that follows it. We need to understand that, that this God of ours, he wants his children to know and to anticipate the future. We don't need sticks or water or stars or zodiac signs or anything like that. We go to the one who's already there and he says, here's what I want you to know. And we need to admit, he doesn't tell us everything about the future. But what he does tell us is for our understanding and for our growth and for his worship. Now that's dead. That's dead. The, the study of eschatology or the study of end times, or the study of things to come, uh, has a tendency to produce a variety of responses in the church, does it not? Just a little bit, a variety of responses. Sometimes more heat than light, we could say. And this is anecdotal, but it seems like more people are willing to leave an assembly over issues of eschatology than they are over issues of ecclesiology, over the church over the things of salvation, over the things of Christ. Those differences people will tolerate, but end times, that's a bridge too far, and people leave. It seems like last things in church music, we're gone. And those, are the, those are the lines, right, that we dare not cross. You know, and we'd be foolish not to at least recognize at the outset of this study that we at Oak Ridge come from a variety of backgrounds, that the Lord has blessed this assembly with a rich, rich diversity. And we praise God for that. But what can sometimes come with that is when we come from a variety of backgrounds, it's very likely that you come from a church background that has approached the Bible and, and approached the book of Revelation in particular very differently than even the person sitting next to you right now. And certainly the person speaking to you right now. We come from different backgrounds and, and different views of this book. But we need to understand that just because all of that diversity, we need to understand that that diversity, it doesn't change the inspiration of this book. We come at it from all different angles and all different presuppositions, but ultimately it's still the Word of God, isn't it? And we still need its message, so really it doesn't matter. We need to get over that diversity and, and actually use that diversity to rightly understand God's Word and how it blesses us today. You think of parents, a mom and a dad, they differ on, on how exactly to encourage and discipline their kids. But they know it still needs to be done. It's not like they come to a, a, an impasse and say, well, I guess we just won't do it then. We're just not going to encourage our kids. We just won't discipline them. No. We have a diversity of opinion. We, we hash it out because we know the job needs to be done. Same with the book of Revelation. It has something we desperately need, and so we go to it in spite, and even because of, fueled by our diversity of background. Now, this, this book, studying what God says about the future, it doesn't have to produce fear and anxiety. It doesn't have to produce pride and division. In fact, it probably should produce the opposite, actually, of those things. It should produce confidence and comfort in what lies ahead. It should produce humility and unity. Not uniformity, but unity. As we all look together at the horizon and what God said, says is coming. And that's our prayer for the months ahead that through this study, we would actually experience an increased unity, an increased shared comfort of what lies ahead. Now, for that to happen, I want to spend some time this morning putting some blocks in place. Before we actually get to the text next week, I want to 
again, just get us ready for the journey we're about to take. And so now you found your way, hopefully, to Revelation chapter 1. And I want to put some, again, put some guardrails in place for the trip we're about to take over the next nine weeks or so. Recently, my wife and I, we went on a road trip out east in Canada. But before we left, we did a few things to help us get the most out of that journey. First, we looked at a map. Pretty good idea, right? We looked at a map to kind of get an idea of the best route to take. Uh, we packed our bags with things that we thought we might need for the trip. And then, ultimately, we anticipated the fun. In the weeks leading up to that journey, we talked and daydreamed about the adventure ahead because that's what it was going to be. And so much so that when it came time to leave, we were at our peak excitement. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're preparing for a journey through Revelation. And so I want to follow that same preparatory checklist to get us ready. I want to look at the map together. Where are we starting? Where are we headed? It's not going to answer all the questions, the potholes and the detours and the greasy spoon restaurant that surprises us along the way. It's not going to answer all of those things, but it is going to set our bearings and give us an idea of where we're headed. And we're going to pack our bags. We're bringing things along for this journey. We need to recognize what those are. And finally, we are going to anticipate the fun. We're going to talk about the blessings we're going to receive because of studying this book together as a church family. So that's how I want to prepare us for taking this trip together. First, we need to check the map, though. Now, again, as I said, this isn't going to tell us anything, but it will give us uh, some bearings to hold on to. In Revelation chapter 1, we find the risen and glorified Christ appearing to the apostle John. And notice in verses 17 and 18, John's response. Chapter 1, 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is an amazing scene, if you think about it. Here we have the finite, John, being introduced to the infinite, standing before him. We have this, this man who is clearly frail in his old age, and he's catching a glimpse of the Almighty standing before him. What was that like for him to try to take in eternality? In a way, this scene, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. Really, it's us frail, finite creatures trying to understand the infinite. And what does it do to John in this text? It knocks him on his face as he tries to take that in. But the Lord tells him, as we read, do not be afraid. Why? Why should you not be afraid? Because Jesus says, because I am with you. And who am I? I am the first and the last. I am the all-powerful, all-knowing one. And I'm going to tell you what you need to know. And I'm going to explain to you what you need to understand. So do not be afraid. Will there be times when you stare into eternity and say, wow, and it knocks you down again? Yes, but I am with you. I am the first and the last. So don't be afraid. And then we come to verse 19. And in that verse, we're given an inspired outline of this book. Read it with me. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That is John's vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things which are pointing to the present condition of the churches represented in chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, the things which will take place after these things, pointing to the future as disclosed by God in chapters 4 through 22. 
Now, a couple years ago, as a church family, we studied the first three chapters of Revelation and the first two sections of that outline, the things which you have seen and the things which are. And next week, we're just going to pick up where we left off. I don't see the need to go back and rehash that information. We're going to pick off in this third section of the outline the things which will take place after these things. In fact, flip over to chapter 4 and notice the clear connection to that outline. In chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. As we look at the map this morning, that's our starting point. That's our place of origin. And the route we're going to take over the next nine weeks or so is one that leads past some amazing scenery. We're going to see majesty and power. We're going to see judgment and war, hope and preservation, worship and consummation. It's an incredible trip. It's an epic trip indeed. But looking at the map isn't the only preparatory work we need to do today. We also have to pack our bags. And everyone packs differently, right? Getting ready for our trip, my wife packed well. Different clothing for different weather conditions and events, snacks for the road, exercise apparel. I packed a toothbrush. It was right exactly that. We had different ways of packing. And we do as well. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we have all packed differently. Whether you're aware of it or not, you bring certain opinions and certain assumptions to this book that will affect the way that we read it. And so as we begin this study, I think it's important that, that you look through my bag. You look through the things that I'm packing for this journey, because I want you to know how I approach this book. Not because you must approach it the same way as me. I'm very confident that many of you do not and will not. And that is fine. I'm very comfortable with that, and I hope that you are as well. We will not all approach this book the same way. That's not the point. But you need to know how I approach this book so that we can get the most clarity out of our study together. So I just want to be upfront with some of the things I've packed for this journey. And I want to list three things that I've packed as we begin. Okay, three things that I bring to the text even before we come to Revelation chapter 1. The first thing is that I hold, and those of you who have been part of Oak Ridge for a while will know this. This won't surprise you but I hold to what I would call a plain, normal reading of the Bible, just consistently applied all the way through. Uh, it's my conviction that God has spoken, and that he's actually pretty good at it. He's a good communicator, and he wants to be understood by his people. And so I don't think we need to spiritualize or dig for hidden meanings or get creative to comprehend and obey him. I don't think that. In fact, in my view, those attempts often cloud and distract from what the Bible is actually saying. When we dig for hidden gems, just take him at his word. Our understanding of it, that, that's secondary. Our comprehension of how it all fits together, that's, that's secondary. But what has he said? I believe the Bible itself actually models and assumes a plain interpretive method. In Genesis, God means what he says. In fact, he speaks in the book of Genesis, and every single time the people understand him plainly and apply what he says plainly, every time. 
We come to the histories. God means what he says. We come to the Psalms. God means what he says. We come to the prophets in the Old Testament. God means what he says. We come to the Gospels. God means what he says. We come to the epistles. God means what he says. And when we come to the book of Revelation, guess what? I think God means what he says. In fact, I think it's, that's assumed that we can understand the book of Revelation. I know the, the general idea is that we stay away from the book of Revelation because it's, it's a code that we just cannot crack. But it seems to fly in the face of the book of Revelation itself, which identifies itself as prophecy. And it says in verse 3 of the opening chapter, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. God says, blessed are those who, who hear this, understand it, and apply it. God's not saying, there's blessing here, but you're never going to get it because you can't understand what I'm saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is blessing for those who read this book, who understand it, and apply it to their lives. Blessing for those who do so. Now, are there tough and confusing sections? Yeah, there are, and we'll get there. I don't deny that. Are there symbols and figures of speech? Yes, of course they are. But that is part of a plain, normal reading of the Bible. Just like in communication for us, we might see, for example, I might see Nate over here going for a jog one day and say, man, that giant runs like the wind. You know, what do I mean? Do I mean that some mythical creature has turned into a warm front carrying through Oakville? And he's, no, of course not. You know what I'm saying. A big guy is running quickly. That is just plain understanding of communication, right? And that's what we do with the book of Revelation as well. Are there symbols? Yes. Are there figures of speech? Yes, absolutely. But we approach them plainly. And oftentimes, honestly, if we're patient, and if we are careful in how we, uh, uh, being attentive to the text, the text oftentimes explains what it means. So I hold to a plain, normal reading of the Bible, consistently applied all the way through. That's something I packed. I'm bringing with me to this book, and you need to know that, because you might not approach it the same way. I don't want to frustrate you unnecessarily, but that's how I'm coming at this book. Secondly, I hold to a futurist view of Revelation, which has already kind of been seen in how I outlined the book. While some believe that Revelation 4 through 22 uh, has largely already happened or is in the process of happening in some way, I don't hold that view. I don't hold that view. I believe the Old Testament and New Testament predicts and Revelation describes a time when God's wrath will be poured out in an especially potent way. And I think that unless we abandon a plain reading of those chapters in Revelation when you read them, what they describe just has not happened yet. The destruction of the temple in AD 70, as tragic as it was, looks to me nothing like what is described in the book of Revelation, which means that still has to happen in the future because God cannot lie. I also believe in a future bodily return of Jesus to the earth to sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem and reign over a literal kingdom for a literal thousand years. I believe that because not only do I think that's what Revelation teaches, but because I think it's exactly what the whole of the, uh, whole of the Bible up to this cumulative point anticipates. It's longing for this kingdom. In fact, I think that's what the disciples anticipated, those who walked with Jesus. They come out of Malachi. They come out of Zechariah. They come out of the Old Testament prophets, and they are looking for a Messiah to sit on David's throne and reign over Israel. That's what they're looking for. 
And we come to the end of the Gospels, and he's been killed, and he raises from the dead. And as I said before, he spends 40 days with them, teaching them, these disciples. One one, can you imagine that seminar, sitting with the glorified Christ, learning at his feet? And what is the topic of conversation? The kingdom of God. 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And after that 40-day seminar, what do they say in Acts chapter 1? Jesus, is it now? Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't correct a word of what they say. He just says, you don't get to know the times. You have a new assignment. And start waiting for this kingdom to be restored. And so I still anticipate, and that is my reading of Revelation, this futurist reading, that that is literally one day going to come to pass. I don't believe anything in the New Testament should go back, and we have been given permission to go back and reread what has been written before. So I hold to a futurist view of these chapters. And you can see that will affect the way that I approach the book as we go through it. Finally, I hold to a pre-chaos removal of the church. You may have heard of this called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, the catching up of believers at the end of the current age. Now, I want to be really honest here. I don't see this doctrine, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, as being as explicit as some other doctrines like the future kingdom reign of Christ. I see that as clear as day in Scripture. The pre-tribulational rapture I see as the best solution to the biblical data we have. And so I hold that view. The tribulation, as it's called, this time when God's wrath will be poured out on the earth in some amazing ways, is also called in Jeremiah 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. I hold that that is primarily for Jacob, you know, for Israel, that is. You know, like so many times before, if you read the Old Testament, there's so many times when God's covenant people, the people who at Mount Sinai said, yes, we've read the terms of the covenant, we want in, that's it, we're in that covenant. And how many times did they rebel and leave that God and break the covenant? And how many times did God go after them and rebuke them and chastise them, sending a prophet to warn them, you are outside the, the terms of agreement of our covenant. And in that covenant, in those terms, there are curses listed there for your disobedience. And so God brings those curses on his people. Why? To bring them back to himself, to bring them back into covenant faithfulness. I think that's going to happen again in the future. I think that right now Israel is in massive rebellion against God. Well, they did crucify his son, after all. They are in right now a, a time of partial hardening. And I believe there's a time in the future when God will again bring them to repentance through calamity that is through this tribulation, through this time of Jacob's trouble. The church, however, is not Israel. It's not the same thing. The, that coming tribulation is not for us. And because of a number of Old Testament and New Testament texts, I believe that the church will be taken away before the events of Revelation 6 begins. Now, that doesn't mean we can't still learn from those chapters. We can and we must, and by God's grace, we will. But it does mean, from my point of view, that we need not fear them. So here's just a few things that I've packed for the journey that you need to be aware of. I hold to a plain reading of Scripture, a futurist view of the book of Revelation, and a pre-chaos removal of the church. Now, I'm not going to make this study through Revelation about those things. I'm going to try not to, but it's going to be hard to keep them out altogether. They may pop up from time to time, which is why I wanted to be clear from the outset as to the baggage I'm bringing with me. They are important for us to know beforehand. Now, we've looked at the map. We've packed the bags, or at least my bag. You've looked over my shoulder as I've packed. 
I want to summarize here um, some things that I'm confident of. Here's three things that, at this point, I'm quite confident of as we start this study. One, I'm confident that I'm right. I see no need to soft pedal that. You know, I'm confident in a plain reading of Scripture being the right way to read Scripture. I'm confident in a future view of Revelation. I'm confident in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I'm confident of those, th those things. And, and I'm not going to soft pedal those, and I'm going to preach as though I'm right. But secondly, I'm confident I might not be. <laughs> I've been wrong in the past, I'll be wrong in the future, and I'm wrong somewhere now. If I knew where it was, I'd change it, but I don't, so I don't. So there it is. You know? So I am confident I'm right, but I'm also confident I might not be. And that leads me to the third thing of which I'm confident. And that is that ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. This is God's word to his people. The Spirit who wrote it lives in us, and we as a community of believers prayerfully come to this book aching not only to see the future, but to be changed in the present. That's what we come to it for. And transformation will happen regardless of our disagreements, regardless of our errors or my errors, regardless of our confusion. God will work. Of that, I am very, very confident. Now, we're almost ready to hit the road. We've checked the map and we've packed the bags, but now the best part. We get to spend some time anticipating the fun. Fun I'm using loosely for some of us, but it's going to be fun. There are blessings associated with reading this book. Before our trip, my wife and I, you know, we anticipated the fun of going on this trip. We talked about the food that we would eat and the ocean we would see and the rest we would enjoy. It was going to be a blessing of a trip, and we knew it, which just added to our excitement. And by the time it was time to leave, we couldn't wait because we had anticipated it so much. Our journey through Revelation is going to bless us, Oak Ridge. There's no doubt. In fact, as I already read in chapter 1 of Revelation, it is promised in the book itself, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. And actually, he closes the book in a similar way. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And so, in the time I have left, I want to help us anticipate the fun we're going to have by suggesting five blessings that we are going to experience in our time together. These are things that, in spite, perhaps, disagreement on the book, these are things that unify us. These are things that every one of us can experience, and all of us together, as we come to this study. Number one, we will experience the blessing of humility. And every church needs humility. How many churches fall because of pride? How many preachers fall because of pride? How many marriages fail because of pride? How many believers fall in their faith because of pride? We need humility. And that is something that we're going to be blessed with in this study. You know, in his second letter, uh, the Apostle Peter, he's writing, and he admits that he's looking at some of Paul's writings, and he says, man, that Paul, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is Scripture. But man, some of it's hard to understand, Peter says. I love that verse in 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says some of Paul's stuff is hard to understand. I think he's reading Romans, some of that. And some of that is wrinkles the brain. It's hard to get our heads around. And I'm wondering that over the next couple of months, some of us might add the Apocalypse of John to that list. Some of these things are hard to understand, hard to get our minds around. 
and yet it honors God. It is an act of worship to prayerfully engage hard things anyway. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God and useful, so that the people of God may be built up, equipped for every good work, all Scripture, which includes Revelation. And so we need the book of Revelation. We need it to be fully equipped for what he has for us to do. So as we study a book that, let's be honest, most people stay away from, as we study this book together, we are declaring as a church in a unified voice, God, you are worth the discomfort and you are worth the effort. Yes, it's going to be hard, but you are worthy of it. You have spoken and we want to hear from you. We're going to humble ourselves under the word of God and be humbled in this study of God's word because that's what Revelation is, God's word to us. Second, we will experience the blessing of purity, of purity. Studying things to come pushes us to holiness. It pushes us to maturity. I'm going to read a number of texts here. You don't have to turn there with me, but just listen to these passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 13. Paul writes this. He says, he's speaking to the church. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we see here that, that the fuel for killing sin in our lives, the fuel for pursuing purity, what is it in that text? Because the day is near. Jesus is coming back, and so we want to pursue purity. That is a motivation for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. It says, and everyone who has this hope. What hope? The hope of the return of Christ. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, the anticipation of Christ's return has a purifying effect, and it will for us over these weeks as well. As we sometimes sing together as a church, we sing, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. What do we mean by that? We mean ready as in we are pursuing holiness. We are more and more pure like a bride waiting for her groom. Every heart longing for our king we sing. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. That blessed hope looking to the end, it prompts God's people to be ready. Pursuing holiness, godliness, and purity. I just want to suggest if you are here today and you struggle with sin, that's all of us, but if you are especially struggling with sin, maybe a besetting sin, maybe there's a habitual sin that you want to get rid of, but you keep on falling back into it, may I suggest that perhaps a remedy is eschatology. Perhaps you have too low a view of things to come. Perhaps what lies ahead needs to be in the forefront of your mind, and that can give you the fuel for pursuing purity. That will be a prayer as we go forward in this series. That as we look beyond the horizon to see Christ coming and what it's going to be like, we would experience victory over sin as we lead toward purity. Number three, we will experience the blessing of community, fellowship, and intimacy with one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, 
verse 24, the author says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We love one another. We serve one another. But it should ramp up as we anticipate the Lord's return. As we see that day drawing near, we get more and more excited about leaning in to this assembly. As we understand what lies ahead and we grow in our confidence in the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ, we will press into this place, becoming increasingly freed from the snares and distractions of this world and more ensnared with the needs and love in the assembly. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, because the end is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer, praying for one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But did you catch the motivation? Because the day is near, pray for one another, love one another, be hospitable to one another, and serve one another because the day is near. See, it inspires community when we have our eyes locked on the horizon. So what do we see when we look to the end? When we study last things, well, we see humility and purity and true community in which needs are met, prayers are prayed, care is given, service is offered, and faithfulness is encouraged. Is there anything more unifying or potentially unifying than a shared study and a shared anticipation of eternity together in sinlessness? How can we fight when we know that that is coming as we grow in that anticipation that builds community in the here and now? Fourth, we will experience at Oak Ridge the blessing of urgency, of urgency. Philippians, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most of you will agree with this, that just like the first century disciples, 21st century disciples live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And you will also agree that in the same way we are to appear as lights in the world. How? Well, he says we root ourselves in the word of life with an eye to the day of Christ. It's been said that we will not commend to a world a God that we do not adore. As we adore the Lord, that is what we commend to the world. Well, Paul comes along here and he adds, he says, we won't commend to a world a future that we do not ourselves anticipate. And so as we as believers look to the future and say, I want that so badly. And as the world is crooked and dark, we stand as lights rooted on the horizon. See, it adds this urgency. Add to that, as we study eschatology, we know what the end holds for those apart from Christ. Does that not add urgency to us in our evangelism? How can there be apathy? Back to 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. Well-known verse. 
Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, to make that defense of the hope that is in us, we have to know what the hope is that's in us. We have to know what that is. A, a vague view of what that will be is less powerful in our lives than a clear view of what is coming. You know, I'm convinced that you know, Christians today, in fact, I read recently that there was a study that came out maybe a year or two ago by Barna that found that um, almost half of millennial Christians, self-professing uh, self Christians, say that it's wrong to evangelize. That it's sinful. It's bigoted. It's harsh. It's evil. Christians, they keep it to themselves. The only way you get there, friends, is if we lose sight on what's coming. That's the only way you get to that level of apathy and that level of indifference. And honestly, that level of hatred for the lost. Because that's what it is. But when we see what is coming, and we know the hope that we have and what that will be when the Lord appears, how can we not commend that to the world around us? There's this increased urgency in evangelism when we know what is coming. One more. This is a blessing for us that we can anticipate in the weeks ahead. And it's the blessing of expectancy. It is this growing hope. And we all need hope, don't we? The anticipation of a future certainty. Here's what I, there are things I don't know about the future. There are things that the Lord in his, in his sovereign knowledge decided not to tell us, but there are some things he has told us. And I cling to those and you do as well. We want to know these things. First Peter chapter 1. Listen to this text. This text is just breathtaking. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, we're saved now, but we await that final salvation, don't we? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you great, greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. One more in Colossians 3. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That is our hope, brothers and sisters. Resurrection, glory, sinlessness, eternity with Christ, our Savior and our God. And the more we know it, the higher our expectancy for that day, and the more we can say with excitement and sincerity, come, Lord Jesus, come. 
About 10 months ago, I was in an elders meeting over here and planning for 2023, this year. And I asked the other elders, I said, where do you think the Lord is leading in the pulpit ministry for this church in the coming year? You have your finger on the pulse of, of the needs of the congregation as much as I do. Let's pool our resources. Where do you think we should go? What would most bless our people? And it wasn't very long to my recollection, recollection where two or three of them said, yeah, Revelation. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> I, I left a long silence. Any other suggestions? Anyone? <laughs> Speak up, anyone. They said, we need to know what's happening. We need to know what is to come. We need that hope refurbished in us. We need a humility, a purity, a community. We need an urgency. We need an expectancy. We, I think the book of Revelation is where we're, where we're going next. You can tell I, I waited as long as possible in 2023 and still remain obedient, right? I mean, we're getting right up till the end here. Um, but I needed time to study, to do my homework. And I'll tell you, as I have over the last 10 months or so, I was corrected by the Holy Spirit in my initial anxiety over that suggestion. It's been replaced with a sincere anticipation. Not because we're all going to agree. We're not going to, and that is fine, again. But we will sharpen each other. And our God is worthy of that submission. We come to this word and say, Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And as we understand some of the blessings that he has promised to the church, like a humility that will keep us fervent and healthy as a community of faith for years to come, God willing, we need that humility. We need purity. Not that we are so defiled right now, but it's not something that marks the people of God a pursuit of holiness. We need that. We need a community. We need a place where we belong and where we're known and where we're served, and where we're loved. That's what we want to be. We need a place where there's an urgency for the lost, not an apathy. Oh, someone will tell them sometime. No, we want to go after lost people in love, with desperation and dependence on the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and prayerfully. Say, Lord, save people. Snatch them from the flames. We want that urgency. We want that to define us as a church. And we want expectancy that every time we come here on a Sunday and we lift our voices together, we are anticipating that time around the throne. We will say, holy, holy, holy. That's what we are anticipating. That's what we're looking for. And so this is just a warm-up. This is practice time for our eternity together. Not that eternity is just going to be a worship service forever. Don't get me started on that. But it is going to be glorious. And this is a taste of that. And how do we get to all those things? We look to the horizon. We don't look to sticks and palms and stars we look to the God who's already there. He says, I'll tell you what you need to know. I'll tell you, and it will bring you comfort and unity beyond what you know now. It's a wonderful thing. I'm excited for the trip. I hope that you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons and other resources, you can visit our website at witchbiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, word processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.